0: Hello and welcome to May's Book Club with me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. As usual, my panel is Jean Fairburn, Felicity Radcliffe and Alice Scalding And this evening we are going to review Julia Quinn's The Duke and I, all about Bridgerton. But first of all, let's see what the girls are going to say. What have you been reading apart from Bridgerton, which we're going to talk about in a minute? What else are you reading at the moment?
1: Fliss. Oh, I had to think about that. I am so caught up with my own stuff at the moment. I haven't been reading a lot. Right. So Um, you've been editing uh, your book, haven't you? Yes, I have. And it's all getting a bit frantic at the moment. But I have read a book called The 40 Rules of Love by um, Ellie. Oh, you've caught me out now. She's um, a fabulous Turkish writer. Yeah. And it's set in the 12th century and a very, very interesting book. So I've enjoyed that. But at the moment, which is very unusual for me, I haven't got a book on the go because I'm just mm-hmm. desperately trying to get my, um, my final edits done. No and the good. deadline's the end of next week. So I'm a bit manic right now. OK, what about you,
0: Jean? I am,
2: apart from keep rewinding the hot scenes from Fridgeton on Netflix, I am reading Bill Bryson's Little Dribbling which is a 20-year revisit of his first Notes from a Small Island, which is a right. parody of a travel book. So funny. Yes, I,
0: funny. Did, I, did, yes I did read the, uh, the first book. It was uh, very, very funny. Yeah, so he's got the update 20 years later. A little oh, right. okay. and, and Alice, what are you reading? I've read a couple of Peter James
3: thriller-type novels. All right. Well, I've been
0: reading the Ladies of Flanglochland, which is about a couple of ladies who lived together at the turn of the uh, 18th, well, at the very end of the 18th century. But I didn't like the way it was written. So I didn't really get into that. So then I started reading the latest David Hockney book because he's now in France and he went to France because he can smoke openly in France. And also, obviously, for the light and the color, et cetera, et cetera. I just adore Hockney. So that's what I'm reading at the moment. Anyway, let's go back to Bridgerton, The Duke and I, the book recommended by Alice last month. Not my cup of tea at all, as I said to you at the very beginning, but I would read it. I got a quarter of the way through and thought, I can't read any more of this. It is so fluffy and the story is so light. I just can't bear that sort of thing. It's like flipping Barbara Carton. So... I did watch it all on Netflix to see the end of it, to see exactly what happened. There was one paragraph which I did laugh out loud, just the one. And it was at the very beginning. The two Bridgertons let out identical size as they slumped against the wall. Violet Bridgerton was undeterred in her mission to marry off her children. Anthony, her eldest son, and Daphne, her eldest daughter, had borne the brunt of the pressure although Daphne suspected that the Viscountess might have cheerfully married off the 10-year Hyacinth if she'd received a suitable offer. No, I thought that was funny. That's the only thing that made me laugh. It's just not my cup of tea. So I am not one to talk about it, and I know there are fans of this type of writing, so I will go straight over to Jean. Oh, okay.
2: Well, I'm going to give you some literary analysis. I mean, it's actually, I think, cleverer than you think, because it's got Lady Whistledown Society papers are uh, used as a framing device. So that's how you get your plot, because you get it summed up at the beginning, which is actually rather clever, I thought. So it's a rom-com, as they say, the next best thing to Georgette Hare. I wondered why she had these strange anachronisms, you know, like the steel toe caps. And then I realised she was American, I just read her up. So she's American, so of course, what does she know about the finer pieces of history? She's actually a history of art student, and everything is very spectacularly visual, isn't it? So anyway, this is a framing device, which is an old-fashioned way of writing satire, although it's Regency. I also thought, well, she's American, so what was happening in 1813? There was a war. Have you ever seen Captain Sharp on the Spanish Peninsula? we were blockading the East Coast ports of America at the time. Because actually the US, well it's America, wasn't it? A few states. They declared war on us. How very dare they? How silly. So of course our Navy (laughs) was just blocking their ports. But in actual fact, there was still a lot of commerce going on because they brought in stamps. And you could still still send a stamp to America. And um, there's all these pictures of um, envelopes. And so the stamp ships got through they were exempt from the blockade. How wonderful. I thought it's just like today, isn't it? America declared war on us at France's behest. I thought it's just like today. We've got the French saying no, trying to get America to block us. The fact that the characters are colourblind well, there's a colorblindness about it, which is wonderful, I thought. Very, very inclusive. Um, it's because Chandra One that does the Netflix, she is the woman of colour. The other thing I must mention, of course, is that Chandra, who does the adaptation, she parodies the beginning of Pride and Prejudice on page 337 in her epilogue when Daphne has the baby. She says, It's a truth universally acknowledged that a married man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of an heir. So she parodies Pride and Prejudice. So she does sort of pay tribute, if you like, to Jane Austen, who, of course, is the queen of this kind of book. I loved it, but mainly because of Netflix, (laughs) mainly because the leading man is so hot, I suppose, really. He is a very handsome man. He's very and he's rumoured, of course, to be the next Bond, but we're not sure if he'll be overtaken by some other candidate.
0: So the story, Jean? Set in 1813. And the ladies? (laughs) I'm trying to word this as nicely as I possibly can I mean it's a story that goes on and on and on because every single writer that sort of genre sort of picks all this up so what am I missing here you're missing the ability to
2: talk completely to take it apart in a literary fashion and talk about setting up you know and history and all that I mean you see we don't know the history of 1813, do we? But if you're American, you do, because it's when we they stood up to, you know, the imperialists, us, Britain.
0: So for an American audience, it's wonderful. It fuels that uh, the woke movement, if you like. So do you think then that the majority of people that read this sort of genre are looking to give it a good literary critique, or just to listen? To Not at all.
2: Movie? They're looking at. John Watson's body, <laughs> as I was. No, that's on Netflix. I'm talking about you reading the book. Oh, reading the book. Well, those in that slightly irritating, you know, about steel toe caps. You think, mm, she could have done more. But I actually like the way that the Lady Whistledown Society papers actually sum up each chapter. They're quite short chapters, aren't they? I chased myself a little Kindle so I could read it in bed. Yeah, it's actually rather well put together she it's a sort of um, um, a method let's have a sex scene every chapters yeah that, there's nothing strange she could have put it in any she could have made it a Tudor been a bit more torture probably um, she could have made it Victorian it been a bit more poverty a bit more Dickens yeah I mean it was commercially it was great
0: okay what about you Alice you recommended it
3: (laughs) well yes uh I mean obviously I really really like it the Netflix version of it I'm I loved I absolutely loved that it's very slightly different to the book they've included scenes from some of her other books for instance the Lady Whistledown the identity of Lady Whistledown isn't actually told to you until book four but we find out in the first series of Bridgerton who it is. So it is like done slightly differently, but I think it's because they've got the series in mind and a second series. So they're trying to sort of get all the characters introduced so that they can carry on their stories in further other series, if you see what I mean. I love the Netflix series and I just love the book. I think her writing is very, very funny. She's very good at doing the old slapstick scenes. One of the scenes that she writes, which I thought was really funny, was when Nigel gets knocked out and they're trying to work out what they're going to do with him and how they're going to manoeuvre him around and things like that. So, I mean, she writes that very funny. And a little bit later on when they go for a picnic by Greenwich and they, uh, they're trying to get back onto the boat and They both end up in the water because they're trying to stop their youngest boy, Gregory, from falling in. So the Duke and the eldest brother both end up in the water and they're both very, very cross with each other. And that's written very, very well. So she does the slapstick scenes very well. And they're very visual. You can sort of see what's happening in them. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do find annoying about historical romances is that the hero is always over six foot tall. Now, that just drives me insane because men were not six foot tall in 1813. You were lucky if they were five foot eight because everybody was a lot, lot smaller in those days. And that is one thing that I do find a little bit irritating about rom- historical romances. But as I say, I love Julia Quinn's books. I think they're hilarious. So I would definitely recommend her, her writing to anybody who is into historical romantic fantasies. (laughs) So, uh, if nobody has ever heard of this book, Alice, explain the storyline. It's about the mother is trying to marry off her eldest daughter. So she isn't taking very well at balls and various other things. So she makes an alliance with the Duke. They decide that they're going to fool everybody and pretend that they're an item so that she can actually have some attention from some other men because they see her as a friend and not as a partner. So they have this ruse going on. He doesn't want to get married. He's made a vow that he's never going to get married, but eventually they fall in love, da 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 But it's not all plain sailing once they do get married. It's, that's basically the plot without giving too much of it away.
1: What about you, Felicity? What did you think about it? I don't read a lot of this kind of fiction, and I haven't watched the Netflix programme, so I'm just judging it in the context of purely being a book. When I started reading it, I thought, yeah, I know exactly how this is going to play out. I was wrong. I didn't. It did actually surprise me. There's a few twists and turns along the way. I thought the use of Dammer as a plot device was actually... Quite original and unusual. So I enjoyed that. I have to say, I did enjoy it almost despite myself. I found some of the phraseology a bit cringe making. And this might just be me being a horrible pedant, but there were some phrases like, He crimped an eyebrow and that kind of thing. And I was like, what is she on about? You know, some of the writing did really kind of make me cringe a bit. Although the story galloped along quite nicely. One of the problems I had with it was with the dialogue. I thought sometimes it didn't sound like I would imagine 19th century people sound when like they're talking to each other. And I know that's really difficult to do, but sometimes it sounded more like 20th century psychobabble than 19th century people talking to each other. So uh, that sort of kind of took me a bit out of the time and place a bit. There's a lot of telling rather than showing. Sort of Dan Brown type, the hero is tall, dark and handsome, the heroine has brown hair, etc. But perhaps, again, that's my personal taste, you know, I I don't particularly like that quite obvious description. It was very visual. In fact, to me, I thought it sounded, it actually read quite like a screenplay. And I thought I can see how this is a bit of a gift for people who want to adapt it for television. I can imagine how it's quite easy to adapt television because it is sort of quite visually written. It's interesting, you mentioned, Alice, that scene at the beginning with the guy who's knocked out and that you enjoyed it. I actually found it agonisingly drawn out. It seemed to just sort of go on forever, saying the same thing, really. But overall, despite all those things, I enjoyed it. I wanted to keep reading. I found it a pleasant romp. And, uh, you know, we all need a pleasant romp sometimes, don't we? I just think it probably would translate very well onto TV.
0: Well, it did. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't have Netflix. I must be one of the very few people in this world who doesn't have Netflix. I haven't seen it. Right. uh, I
0: mean, it is is a a magnificent um, adaptation. I mean, it must have cost a fortune, absolute fortune to make. The costumes are absolutely out of this world.
3: I did see a little bit of a documentary about it. I saw them having a little bit of an interview together. And Daphne, she had 149 dresses made for that particular production. I mean, I don't think I've had 149 dresses in my lifetime. (laughs) Well, um, did did
0: it say where it was all filmed?
3: Well, one of the places was Castle Howard in Yorkshire. I think it's supposed to be Cleveland Castle, a recognised The turquoise room was recently decorated about five years ago. The time I went up to see it, it had recently been decorated and that turquoise room was in the productions. And they do use that for quite a lot of filming because it was burnt down. The door to the kitchen was left open. And that's where they filmed Brideshead Revisited. They filmed that there as well. So if you've seen Brideshead Revisited, you'll probably recognise some of the scenes there. But I don't know where else it was filmed. Oh, Bar,
2: Sorry, they did... had they had bath one of those wonderful terraces you know you oh yes the
3: yes the crescent
2: yeah yeah the crescent and um yeah lots of carriages etc because that would go with the beau brummel angle and the brighton angle i don't know do they get to brighton i don't think they do not in the novel no no not in that one but i was thinking about the series i mean brighton bath are the um, big regency
0: places aren't they Oh, yeah. so, so how many
3: books are there, Alice? In the Bridgerton series, I think there's five. Quite a lot of her novels are interlinked. The Lady Danbury character, who I uh, the actress who plays her in Netflix is fantastic. She's brilliant. But she's in one or two of her other novels. There's another one that's very funny. It's called How to Marry a Marquess, And that is set in Lady Danbury's house. And she's trying to get her godson married off. She has somebody who comes in and talks her companion and she's sort of on her own with brothers and sisters. Her parents have both died, and she's on her own looking after her siblings. So Lady Danbury's trying to get her married off to her uh, godson, and that's a very funny book as well, we How to Marry a marquis, with... But anyway, um, yeah.
0: <laughs> Would you like what? to live during those times and be part of the ton?
3: I loved it, but I, I think the problem with it is is you as a woman, you didn't really have a huge amount of opportunity, which is one of the things that was great about Lady Whistledown. She actually made her living out of writing her pamphlets, and she actually could make money out of it. Yeah, in in the book, Lady Whistledown could actually make money from her writing and selling her pamphlets, but most women at the time weren't able to to do that unless they were a paid companion or a a seamstress or a modiste or something like that. You know, most women couldn't, couldn't make a living. Um, At the time, they did have to rely on men to look after them. Um, So I don't think I would particularly have enjoyed that very much.
1: And, Felicity, would you have? When people say, you know, would you like to have lived at a particular time in history, people always imagine themselves living as a member of the landed gentry or the aristocracy or someone quite wealthy. But I guess if I translated my own background into the the 19th century, I probably wouldn't wouldn't have been at those exalted heights of society. No, I don't think I would, particularly. I quite like being leading a more independent life that wouldn't have been possible in the uh, the 19th century. And what
0: about Jean?
2: Well, it would have been awful because the whole of Jane Austen's is about women not owning property the importance of having a male heir so all her books are basically about that and you don't get married women's property if you could own in your own right until the 1880s so it was awful um, huge convolutions i mean but all of jane austen's books have that aspect in them no matter what there's only one main underlying Theme and um, of course the other thing is the abolition of slavery. Slavery was abolished in 1833 in Britain. Normally in America in the 1860s, but not really until the 1960s. So although America won that war, which lasted from 1813 to 1815, for the um, people of colour, it'd been better if we'd have won. They'd mm-hmm. been free in 18. 18- It's terribly controversial, isn't
1: it? But I I found towards the end of the book where the hero, whose name I've just forgotten. Simon
0: Bassett.
1: That's right. He urges his daughters to hold out for a love match. I think that's probably... In reality, that's probably not really what's happened, that you went for the best deal, rather than particularly for daughters. You know, daughters were sort of commodities, if you like, yes, okay. to be like- traded to the highest bidder. So I find it unlikely that a father who's got three daughters to marry off would be encouraging them to reject money suitors and hold out for a love match. I think in reality what they would have done was accepted the highest bid, if you like, but per- yeah. perhaps some horrible. That was the featherstones, wasn't it? Yeah. I, yes. I think
2: that's the difference between having an American authored book and a British authored book. Because Americans I think are t- slightly unaware of the class system. Mm.
0: Yes. And I,
1: I think I think it was kind of overlaid as well with sort of um, you know 21st century emotion that mm. that wouldn't have been applied in the 19th century setting yeah um, yeah yeah i agree i agree
0: okay, okay. well, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, if you've got anything else to say about the duke and i we'll take a break clash and, of cultures pardon clash clash of cultures. Of culture. yeah, I, think, I think i
1: think you're quite right there jim we can always rely on you for a bit of history back with me Sue Rodwell Smith for Scribblers Arts
0: with our panel Felicity Radcliffe Alice Goulding and Jean Fairburn we've just done a review of the Duke and I the Bridgerton I should say Duke and I and we are going to look at next month's book which Jean has chosen so can you tell us about the book we're going to review next month please Jean Uh,
2: well I've only read a couple of pages but Bill Bryson is the master of bathos there's there's more public toilets blackpool than anywhere in britain they call them doorways mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not very nice i apologize blackpool um but anyway he's got <laughs> he's sort of scathing remarks um which elevate and then pull you down but because he's american um he also wrote very funny notes from a large island was it no no it's has a small no. island. Yeah, You're from a small island, then you put from a large continent, which is America. And he talks about, well, he's actually very rude about industrial America. But well, there's just all sorts of things. In Cambridge, he says there's talk, He's talking about punctuation, actually. On the platform at Cambridge, he says there's a poster for a Jeremy Clarkson book. The caption read Dads, everything they say, everything they do, everything they wear it's all completely wrong and he's lamenting the fact that there is no apostrophe to indicate the missing i in it is it's just it's but that's not funny particularly (laughs) but it does sum up probably cambridge's preoccupation or not i don't think anybody's preoccupied by punctuation anymore except myself he says in the space of one line 14 words the author's made three elemental punctuation errors. and uh, He's appalled.
0: Right. But he's
2: only, what's the word, Lit- literally appalled because he's obviously poking fun. So it's in the long range of travel books. There's always been travel books from Utopia, Thomas More, 16th century, um, Rasselas, Johnson, 18th century, and they always have something to say, which is more than just the place they're at. It's usually something
0: philosophical. Next month, ladies, we will be reading Bill Bryson's, what's it called? Jane? Little, the Road to Little Dribbling. The Road to Little Dribbling. Okay, well, we'll do that next month. Okay, so what are we going to be doing for May? Uh, there's no sun. <laughs> it's quite a bit miserable. It's rain, 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 rain. But on the 17th of May, which is uh, tomorrow, although the Scribblers Hour is not going out, it's going out on the last Wednesday of the month. So we would have been out of the first phase of lockdown for two weeks. So what will you all be rushing to do, if anything?
1: Please. I'm not sure i will be rushing to, to do anything, really. I suppose just getting together with friends without having to worry about the weather would be rather nice. I think I'm just going to be sort of carrying on as normal, really.
3: Uh, and Alice? Um, I might be going to visit my dad, who lives up in Scarborough, and I haven't seen him since last July. So that might be quite nice to go and visit him. And Jean? Um, well, I've already
2: had my grandson. Family members, once I've got left, I'm going to go and hug Alison on Tuesday (laughs) and partake of her gown. Isn't that
0: nice? Isn't that nice? Well, it will be lovely to be able to go inside. The Bridge Hotel opens on the 17th of May, and I love the Bridge Hotel. I go there down there on my boat when it's a lovely day for lunch, and I always have the same thing. King prawns, samphire, chunky chips, and a lovely glass of their house wine, which is garganega. And that I'm in my element. So I shall very much look forward to be doing that.
1: Well, oh, you should look on their on their website, Sue, unless they've changed it recently. I'm in one of the photographs. Are you? I, yeah. I went to have a meeting with one of my test readers when I was writing the, the last book. It was a beautiful day. And we sat outside and we had coffee. And Absolutely. and it wasn't until some time later that I got a message from somebody saying I was looking on the bridge website and I'm sure it's you on there and we had no idea that we were being photographed at the time.
3: Yeah, yeah but
1: uh, but we're also all sitting there, very pre lockdown, you know, all yeah. sitting there sitting there enjoying enjoying the sunshine.
0: Well, since the um, new A14, it's going to be quite quiet, isn't it? Because um, the traffic's been diverted off that bridge, so it should be a bit quieter when you're sitting outside. So. Yes, very much looking forward to lovely weather. Well, ladies, thank you very much for your time this evening. I will rush out now and get the Bill Bryson book and find somebody to give The Duke and Die to.
3: And, and <laughs> Donate it to the library. They, they'll always take your books. You know
0: me. I'm, I'm a volunteer at Wood Green in the retail shop, and so I'll take the books into there. I'm sure it will rush off the shelf as with. Uh, Richard Osman's book. Well. Keep safe everybody. You take care of yourselves. Bye for now. Thank
3: you. Bye, Bye. thank Bye. you
0: too. Bye for now.
1: Bye everyone. Alison Flood from The Guardian reviews some thrillers for you. The first
0: one is called The Last House on Needless Street, written by Catriona Ward and published by Viper. Catriona Ward's The Last House on Needless Street, which opens 11 years after a little girl vanishes on a family trip to a lake, comes emblazoned with glowing and much-deserved praise from her fellow authors. Stephen King, no less, calls it the most exciting novel since Gone Girl and a true nerve shredder. It is the story of a child whose life was stolen, of Ted, the man who may or may not have done it, and of Dee, the sister out for revenge. That might make The Last House on Needler Street sound straightforward, but it's not. This is the most gloriously complex, shifting story, deeply disturbing yet also somehow heartwarming. Ted lives in a boarded-up house on Needler Street on the edge of the forest with his daughter Lauren who sometimes has to go away, and his cat, Olivia. He is confused, childlike, flipping in and out of the present and the past as he remembers being questioned by the police years earlier over the disappearance of a little girl with Popsicle and as he thinks of his mother, who was born far away under a dark star. Dee's family and life have fallen apart after the disappearance of her sister Lulu. She feels like a big, dark, empty room and is fixed on finding whoever took Lulu. Ward has created something exceptionally unsettling here, as many layered and as sinister as the Russian doll that sits on Ted's mantelpiece. Olivia, Ted's cat, given wonderfully vain voice by Ward, imagines them all screaming in the dark, unable to move or speak, as the outer sits broad and blankly smiling. Well... That's an interesting one there. The next thriller is Later by Stephen King, published by Hardcast Crime. Now, this is a real horror story. Jamie is a normal boy growing up in New York, the son of Tear, a single mother and literary agent who tells him pleasingly self-referential things, such as, most writers are as weird as hers that glow in the dark. (laughs) Normal, except Jamie can see dead people. For just a few days after they die, This immediately takes me to The Sixth Sense by M. Night Shyamalan. It's a talent that his mother largely wants to ignore until her top client, Regis Thomas, dies with the final novel in his long-running and joyfully terrible series, Unfinished. You can guess where this is going, can't you? Jamie is called in to help. But when his mother's police detective lover also learns about Jamie's abilities, she draws him into the case of a notorious serial killer with terrible consequences. King is having a great deal of fun here, whether he's sounding off about Thomas's blockbusters, which are steamily filled with a big hot helping of good old sex, performed by strong men with fair hair and laughing eyes, untrustworthy men with shifty eyes and gorgeous women with firm high breasts, or piling on the good old fashioned scares. Later is a horror story, but it's also a proper thriller told by a master of his craft. We all know where Stephen King takes us with his wonderful works such as The Green Mile, Carrie and The Shining. King was interviewed recently on Hard Talk on the BBC and he said that he was approached by an elderly lady in the street who yelled out, I know who you are, you are that dreadful man who writes horror books. Why can't you write proper books like The Shawshank Redemption? King replied, I did write that book, madam. She replied, no you didn't. <laughs> Absolutely priceless. If you like King's works, you will not be disappointed. The next book is Not Dark Yet by Peter Robinson, published by Hodder and Stoughton. Detective Superintendent Alan Banks has, incredibly, on his 27th outing in Not Dark Yet, a lot to deal with this time around, from a double murder of a crooked property developer and his aide at a luxury mansion. To his friends, Zelda's decision to find the men who abducted, raped, and trafficked her in Moldova years earlier. There is a particularly poignant moment early on as Zelda walks the streets of her childhood from which she was stolen as an orphan and Banks watches his daughter Tracy get married in the Yorkshire Dales town of Eastvale. Both of them looking back on their pasts from such different places. As Banks and his team discover spy cam videos showing a vicious rape in the home of the property developer, Zelda is out for revenge, fearful that, without it, the past would keep growing, like a cancer inside her, consuming or blotting out all that was good in her life. This series continues to be as thoughtful and intelligent as ever, with the usual bonus of the magnificent Dales, all rolling hills, dry stone walls, grazing sheep, and flimsy white clouds snaking across a clear blue sky. At one point, Banks' son Brian asks him why he isn't considering retirement. An allotment? Potting in the garden? Watching too much TV? Rather than the copper's life? But what else would I do? He responds. Long may it continue.